This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Perhaps I was born to survive this. Perhaps I was born only with the ambition to remake myself again and again. The way the oak remakes itself each spring, whether it's an acorn, dark and dormant, or tall and proud in its gray suit, or cut through and hollowed. From the poem Lighten Up, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. My mother loved her sister. They didn't always get along. They fought as sisters are wont to do. But they didn't fight the way my mother and Joe did. Had you asked me a year ago... I would have guessed the relative stability of their relationship could be attributed to the fact my aunt was older, wiser, by three years. Or perhaps because Renee's sense of humor made it easy to not take the drama to heart. She had a way of making anything funny, no matter how dark. But now that I know my aunt played silent witness to my mother's chronic sexual abuse, forced to watch her little sister be raped for years on end, it explains a lot of the patience she had for my mother, and it helps me to illuminate the signs of my aunt's own trauma more clearly. My aunt was my mother's half-sister. She'd been born to my grandmother toward the end of her first marriage. I don't remember much about her father, except that I had met him once when he ran a church in Florida. We'd gone to St. Petersburg when I was six or seven for at least a couple of months so that my grandmother could preach in that church. And so while I don't know why they divorced, or how much of a role he played in my aunt's life. They must have been on good enough terms that he would share his pulpit with his ex-wife. This also meant that my grandparents entered their marriage with a child each. Hank Jr., my grandfather's child, had been two years older than my aunt. And while I know that this half-brother molested my mother, I don't know if he tried anything with my aunt, or how that might have affected her. It's possible that my mother and her sister bonded because of this environment of abuse. One sign of this closeness between them is in my almost name. My mother had wanted to name me after my aunt, hoping to give me a modified version of her name, but this wasn't to be. As my mom told it, she'd passed out almost as soon as I was delivered, after 14 excruciating hours of labor, with no pain medicine, as she often liked to add. When she'd woken up, my father had already written the name Corey on the birth certificate, She'd been mad as hell, but there was little she could do about it. The certificate was completed, signed, and dated, and she'd at least gotten the middle name she'd wanted, Marie, after my grandmother. 
My own experiences with my aunt, with the exception of the very last time we saw each other, were all positive. In my mind, she was cool. Not only because she wore bandanas, jean cutoffs, and a bikini tank top, drove a raised jeep, but there was just something about her. With a cigarette dangling between her lips, she just looked like a person who had it together, who wasn't phased by anything. My aunt had dated mostly women. This pattern was so predictable that when I did see her with a man, it was always jarring and strange. I'm sure this image I had of her wasn't helped by the bandanas and the raised jeep, or the masculine swagger that she often projected. One of her longest partnerships was with a woman that I only remember one thing about. She drank water. Only water. As an adult, I only drink water and tea myself, but as a child, I was fully emerged in the realm of Kool-Aid and soda, and sometimes, if I was good, my grandmother's coveted sweet acidophilus milk in its attractive yellow jug. But no one I knew drank water. This was a mind-blowing concept to seven-year-old me. And we would actually whisper about this, me and my cousins. Have you met Renee's new girlfriend? She only drinks water. As if this was really the most scandalous thing happening in my world right now. One of her girlfriends had a daughter just a couple of years younger than me. This meant I had, at long last, a female playmate. Until then, I'd had a male half-cousin from Joe's marriage to Lana, and the two little boy cousins freshly arrived. I went from being an only child to the self-appointed leader of a ragtag crew. Of course, not that anyone would acknowledge me as their leader, but since I was the oldest by six months, I claimed the title nonetheless. Together, we spent warm days in my aunt's backyard, in the small above-ground pool. It couldn't have been more than three feet deep, but I would float on the surface and watch the airplanes pass by overhead, their white bellies shining in the sunlight. This view was a guarantee since the airport was only a mile away. At night, we would all pile into Renee's big bed and watch movies. While it's true that my aunt was patient with the kids, pairing our antics with her sarcasm, she did also like to torment us. One night, as my cousins and I lay down in the dark, watching a scaryish movie, probably Poltergeist as it was one of my favorites, I looked toward the dark window, only to discover a horrible face staring back at me. It was pig-like, with a hooked nose, snarling with monstrous white hair shooting in all directions from the top of its head, and blood streamed down its face. I screamed first, and the chorus of voices rose to meet mine, except, of course, the screams had been more confused than anything, until I'd added the illuminating words, The window! in which they grew more earnest once they saw the face for themselves. Then, my aunt had the audacity to run back inside, mask removed, and ask us, What's going on in here? What's wrong with y'all? And then do her best not to smile while we tried to tell her about the monster outside. Halloween masks and jump scares weren't her only tactics. She would also lie face down in her pool and pretend to be dead. I'd gotten wise to this game quick, but once she'd done it for so long, I thought she was actually dead. Pulling on her arms only floated her across the surface, and when I tipped her over toward the sky with much effort, her eyes had been wide, lifeless, unseeing. What followed was a blood-curdling scream from yours truly, at which point my aunt stood up, wiped the water from her face, and said, 
You could wake the dead with those pipes. Hell, you just did. And then she'd begun to laugh. I'd begun to cry. And I'd been at her place when my mom had returned after a brief disappearance. I can't remember exactly how long she'd been gone, or what the circumstances were, but I remember her arrival. I'd been sitting in one of my aunt's high-back peacock chairs, folded completely inside of it, eating a popsicle. Beside me was a tall vase with blue and gold peacock feathers protruding from it, which I liked to run my hands over when my aunt wasn't looking. Renee told me they were too delicate to touch, that I would break the feathers if I kept bending them like that. She was right, I had done this more than once, but that hadn't stopped me from running my fingers over the soft fibers as soon as she looked away. Only when she snapped her head in my direction, trying to catch me, would I turn my attention to the scroll on the wall, pretending to inspect it with the fervor of an art historian. It was oriental in style, with two tigers ascending a mountain. We had been playing this particular game, me looking at the scroll, not touching feathers, when someone knocked on the door. Renee looked through the peephole first, grunted, and undid the chain. My mom burst in, her stride brisk. In hindsight, it's possible she was nearing mania, or just coming out of it. She's right here, Renee began, but apparently my mother wasn't here to collect her daughter. I need you to take pictures of me, she announced. Renee twisted the lid off of a wine cooler. For what? My mom inched in close and raised a sleeve. It looked like a handprint to me, a large black and purple bruise. But to my aunt, she said, car accident, a look passed between them. Then my mother pressed a disposable camera into her sister's empty hand. My aunt sighed, took another drink before putting the cooler on the counter. Let's do it on the balcony, the light is better. I rose, intending to follow them out, but my mom shook her head. Eat your popsicle, baby. We'll be right back. And then they closed the door behind them. Through the Venetian blinds, I watched my mother undress, getting all the way down to her brawl and underwear. Her body was covered in bruises. They varied in size and severity, some black, some fading to yellow. From the neck down, it looked like the body of a corpse. Christ, Letha, my aunt murmured. What the hell happened to you? I don't remember what my mother said in reply to this. Maybe she spoke too softly for me to hear. I only remember the look of her body, the cascade of blooming colors like something was dying inside her, rotting from the inside out. You look like hell, Renee added. If someone had said this to me, I probably would have cried. But my mom had actually lifted her head a little higher. Her smile might have been sad, unsteady at the corners, but her gaze was defiant. My aunt raised the camera to her eye again, snapped another picture, before turning the little plastic wheel with her thumb to set up the next shot. My mother treated her body with contempt. It was as if she wanted to hurt it, as badly as she could, and then look into the eyes of the bastard hurting her, and say, This is the best you can do. It's not enough. You can't destroy me. I'm still here. It was probably the only way she'd ever experienced a measure of power in her abusive relationships. Renee took another route in dealing with her trauma. In the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, one patient spoke of how, after being raped, she'd begun binge eating. 
By binge eating, she made herself bigger. When you're big, no one looks at you, the victims had said. When you're big, you're safe. And how once these women had begun therapy to shed the weight, at first they'd felt great, until men began to notice them again, sparking off their compulsive eating habits. And in a short time, these women usually regained everything that they had lost. My aunt, too, had cycled with her weight over the years. I have pictures of her as a chubby kid, as a too-thin twenty-something, and as a chronically overweight adult. Had she eaten like this to protect herself? With so many sexual predators around, had it made her feel safer to be big, to hide herself within herself? Some people suffered loudly, like my mom. The fallout and shock waves felt for miles. They will be more than happy to pull up their sleeves and show you the scars, show you where the world has cut them deep. Then there are those who suffer like my Aunt Renee, quietly, voicelessly. They suffer with eyes wide open, eyes they wish they could shut. It was December 2003 when my mother called to tell me Renee had died. I remember the moment clearly. I had just walked through the door and dumped my heavy backpack onto the floor. It was stuffed with my end-of-semester materials, because I had several major projects that needed to be wrapped up before the semester ended. But first, I needed food. But before I could decide what I was going to eat, my phone rang. Through my mother's tears, I heard, She's gone. She's really gone. Who? My first thought was Nana, of course, because even though Nana wasn't old-old, she would have been only 68 at the time. I definitely thought she would go before anyone else in the family. At that point, I'm pretty sure she had already had the first of several heart attacks and a few medical scares to boot. She was hardly a spring chicken, as they say. My friend and roommate Jen must have seen something in my face because she mouthed, Who is it? I'd mouthed back, My mom, before sinking into the chair. It would be almost three years more before Jin would meet my mother herself, see the hooked-shaped scar tracing her skull with her own eyes. But already, just in the years since we'd become friends, she was beginning to think of my family as nuts. Renee, my mom said. She's gone. Shock shivered through me. How did she die? I asked. An overdose. Joe found her in the bathroom floor of her girlfriend's apartment, naked. He's the one who called the police. My god, what a terrible way to go naked on the floor. I tried to imagine Joe dressing my aunt's large, bloated body. I listened to my mother cry, the minutes stretching on, folding in on themselves. Into her sadness, I say, I'm sorry. My mother sniffled into the phone. She was the only one who understood me, my poor sister. And I was sorry for my mom, but for me... I was still a little bitter. I was thinking things like, what did she expect to happen? I told her she needed to quit that shit and look, look what happened, I told her. It had been only two years since I'd last seen Renee alive at my grandfather's funeral. The only memory I really had of the two of us during that visit was when I had walked into the bathroom, found her loading up her crack pipe, and had reacted with rage, how I had slapped it out of her hand, into the sink, how I'd screamed at her, demanding to know how she could do this 
with children in the house. How could she? The way she hadn't even looked at me, bent over the sink, her gaze down and wounded. Was that what she looked like in the last minutes of her life, alone in a bathroom, loading a crack pipe, thinking, what? How had she gotten there? Why was her life so out of control? Wondering maybe why she couldn't stop? Or was it something simpler? I'm tired. What will I have for dinner? Any of the mundane things we ask ourselves during the course of a day. Was the funeral really the last time I'd spoken to her? I have a photo that looks like it was taken about the same time as the funeral. In it, my grandmother sits in a kitchen chair, holding my arm affectionately across her chest and smiling for the camera. Renee has her arm thrown around my shoulder. It's as if we haven't fought at all. But I don't know if this photo was taken before or after our confrontation. I can't put it in a timeline. But I hope we talked after. I would want her to die knowing I loved her. That 37-year-old me understands her predicament better than 17-year-old me. I'm sure whatever I said that day had all the self-righteousness of teenagehood behind it. It's no longer. That's bad. You have to stop. Now, what's wrong with you? Today, I understand exactly what was wrong with her. No doubt her addiction stemmed from the horrible things she'd endured as a child, and maybe also as an adult. Watching her stepfather rape his own daughter, and who knows what other dark moments. Her addictions were only a coping mechanism against the pain. She wasn't her addiction. My aunt was smart, funny in a dark, sarcastic way. She would have been a good friend, a good aunt, to have around. I wish she could have known it, or at least known that I'd forgiven her. And if only it could be so easy with Joe. But then again, Renee never put her hands on me, never called me names, never cursed at me. Joe can't say the same, and that's the least of it. I tell all of this to my therapist, the one I got specifically to help me work through my mother's death and all the secrets that followed. With her, I review my old fears and my new ones. I wrap up our latest session with, I'm terrified of calling the medical examiner tomorrow. Why is that? She asks. We are so close, we are past the deadline, they're definitely going to give me an answer, and God, what are they going to tell me? I don't even know. What are they going to say? What do you think they're going to tell you? She asks me. That he killed her? They're going to say that she had poison in her veins, or she was a heroin overdose, and if it's heroin, oh my God, I know it's him. She'd never use it in her life. I don't think she even knows how to use it. Let's assume that you call them, and that's exactly what happened. Your mother died of a heroin overdose. What will you do then? What will I do then? With the certain knowledge that he killed her? I don't know, I admit. Try to convince the police to charge him, though my confidence is really low. They've let him get away with so much. I find it hard to believe a murder charge will stick to this man. It's also possible that you won't have your answer tomorrow, she reminds me. They might tell you that it was natural causes or a cause of death was undetermined. How will you feel if it's ambiguous? <sighs> Confused, probably. I think no matter what answer you get, it's important that you know what you believe happened. What I believe. Yes, for your own sake, you need to reconstruct the narrative 
and tell yourself what you think the truth is. It might be the only way forward for you. What do I think happened? I ask myself this over and over as I find the medical examiner's number in my phone and dial it with shaking hands. My heart pounds in my ears as I listen to the ringtone until the familiar robot voice comes onto the line. You've reached the office of the medical examiner. Please listen as the following options have changed. I push the numbers. I wait until a human says, Medical examiner's office, this is Cherry. How can I help you? Hello, I'm calling for an update on my mother's autopsy results. Your mother's name? And I give her my mother's name again. The line crackles. Yes, ma'am, thank you for waiting. It looks like the medical examiner has finished her report. And the cause of death is... My arms grow heavy. My vision darkens. It was an overdose. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.